Um, we're going to have three of us speak about the text. But first, let's get to the text. And uh, Stephen doesn't know this, but we're not going to deal with love this week. <laughs> we're going to deal just with the first part of it, and then next week we'll be on love. But let's read the whole text, which is uh, Matthew chapter 22. We have a habit of going through books in, in the church here. And one good thing about going consecutively verse by verse through a book is that um, you never have to wonder whether God wants this text to be a part of our curriculum. And today we have kind of a funny thing, which not a funny thing, but a serendipitous thing or a faith thing or a, a God ordaining thing. Did you notice the text that we had as our Westminster Shorter Catechism? It dealt with the question of whether some sins are worse than others. And as it happens, that's what our text in Matthew is also about today. We didn't arrange that. It just happened. You know how many things in life just happen. And uh, so this week we're on Matthew 22, which dovetails perfectly with this statement of the Westminster Shorter Catechism about the various levels of sin. So let's hear the word of God as it's written uh, by the... uh, by the disciple Matthew, recorded in Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, here we come to the end of the questions put to Jesus by the religious leaders. There have been a number of confrontations between the religious leaders and Jesus. They want to see him dead. They're plotting his death. And they're intensifying the opposition with every step that they take. And so we've gone through a number of the questions, and they're tag-teaming Jesus. When the Pharisees get done, the Sadducees start in. When the Sadducees get done, the Pharisees start in. So the Sadducees just came to him with a question that they thought would get him. It didn't get him. And so now the Pharisees see that the Sadducees were shut down. And, of course, there's rivalry between these religious groups, so I'm sure the Pharisees were happy to see that the Sadducees had failed. But on the other hand, nobody was happy. None of the religious leaders were happy to see Jesus escape any trap because all of them were agreed they wanted to see Jesus trapped. And so here we come, this time with the Pharisees, and it says that they gathered themselves together, verse uh, 34. Now, this was not a gathering that was normal. This would have been a gathering specifically for the purpose of trapping Jesus. And they were having essentially a war council, a private war council, seeing how they were going to get Jesus. And so they got together, and then it shows us that the result of their war council was that they sent one of them, and a particular one of them, a lawyer, to ask Jesus a question. I've been preaching for 25 years or so. And until about two or three weeks ago, I never realized there were lawyers in Scripture. Nicodemus, you know, any of these guys, I never actually thought of lawyers as being in Scripture. I don't know why. And so I had my eyes open when I read that one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. Um, So what is the lawyer? Well, in... The Gospels, usually lawyers are called scribes. They're the people that specialized in studying the Old Testament. 
Today, when we think of lawyers, we think of people that specialize in the Constitution of the United States or of the state of Indiana or people that deal with legal codes, people that uh, are the interface between the private and the public life. All right. If you're if you're busted for DWI, you get a lawyer. If you get busted for speeding in Louisville, as as I have, you know, you'll get tons of letters from lawyers in Louisville who know it's it's a lucrative business to send letters to out-of-towners to help them get out from under the point system. All right? And so we have private life, we have public life, we have a ton of laws that our representatives have put in place to make sure that what we do as individuals doesn't violate the rights of others and doesn't jeopardize anybody. Now, what was a lawyer in the time of Christ? Since they didn't have a constitution, since they didn't have, you know, how many laws are there just in the IRS code? You know, let alone, you know, all the other legal codes that we have. Well, back then, the law was the law of God. So the Old Testament was the law book. And so lawyers back then studied the Old Testament so that they knew it perfectly. They parsed it unbelievably well. They knew how many of them there were. They had a way of ranking each one. And this was a part of the life of lawyers and scribes. They'd go around adjudicating conflicts between individuals, husbands and wives, parents and children, uh, the, the Roman authority and the Jews, the religious life, the coins. We saw a couple weeks ago, even to the point of having Rome get, get, to coin a coin that would not have any images on it so that they wouldn't be offended by using a coin with images in their religious life. So if you knew the law of God, you knew the law of the state, you were in a position to be able to adjudicate, to bring peace, to bring mediation to any conflict between individuals, between individuals in the synagogue, between individuals and the empire of Rome. Okay? So, in other words, a lawyer back then was largely like a lawyer today. Not much different. And so they sent them a lawyer. Somebody who studied the meaning and application of God's law to their lives, often called scribes. And we have a picture of the kind of work these men did in Matthew 15, halfway through the book of Matthew, where we read that some Pharisees and scribes, and you can think experts in the law, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? In other words, why are they lawbreakers? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So what law were the disciples guilty of? They were guilty of the law of washing hands. Now in America today, do you think anybody is concerned about uh, the tradition of the elders in, ha in washing hands? Why, it would be interesting to take a camera and put it in the men's room and find out how many of our elders do wash their hands. In other words, really, really, if it comes down to it, wouldn't you like to know that our elders wash their hands? I mean, it does seem to be a pretty good thing to have a law about. And the lawyers and the scribes were very intense about this. Now, I could go off here and, and, and talk a little bit about washing hands. I won't. I won't. I'll let Adam do that afterwards. But it is kindness when you go to visit a baby at a hospital, right? It is kindness if you want to touch that baby, which you all do. It is kindness to wash your hands. 
Now, we can just write the, write the scribes off and just say, yeah, that's the kind of nitpicking. But really, it's not nitpicking at all. But Jesus says to them, oh, you're concerned about the washing of hands of the disciples, right? And then look at what he does. They say, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain... Do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men? Now, what's going on here, people? What's going on? Well, what's going on is that they come to him with a complaint about hand washing of his disciples, and he ups the ante. You know that. He's upping the ante. He's saying to them, okay, you're concerned about hand washing. Why do you tell people to violate the law of God, which says honor your father and mother? Now, what's going on here? Well, <clears throat> I always take great delight in reminding us that the only time Jesus refers to the fifth commandment, he applies it to grown children and their elderly parents. We love to apply this to you little ones and say, honor your father and mother so that your days may be long, you know. And everybody looks at little kids and says, it's good there's a commandment for them. But Jesus applied this commandment to those of us who have elderly parents. And the illustration of our failure of this commandment was to say that what we do is we go to the preacher and we say, Hey, preacher, you know, you're trying to make the mortgage payment on your church. You know, my church. This is my church. I own it. I'm being cynical. It's your church. All right. It's not my church. You're sitting in it. You know, preacher, tell you what, if you want help paying for your church, all right, what you need to do is give me an out with my parents because my parents have a prior claim on me. You know, my parents are at a point in life where they're not able to work, where my dad's had a stroke, my mother has Alzheimer's, and, you know, they need help, but you need your church paid for. And so what you need to do is come up with a system. So the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees were very willing accomplices to the crime. What they said to them was, okay, look, dedicate your money to the church. And then when your parents come to you, say, oh, my, that, ooh, that money is Corbin. You know, that's dedicated to God. You know, I can't help you. And Jesus says that by doing that, you what? You nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. And the only way that makes sense is what? They come to him and say, your disciples aren't washing their hands. Jesus says, hey, fifth commandment. You say that they can go ahead and dedicate their money to the temple, and then they don't have to help their parents. Now, how does that work? It works because it's clear that they're focused on a small command while they intentionally treat the, teach the people to violate one of the central commands of all of life. Right? It's the only way that Jesus works. And then he says this. He says, 
You nullify, you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. This was what the lawyers did. This was their job. Their job was to count up the laws and to say what ones were important, what ones weren't important, and then to make excuses for people as to why they didn't have to obey the ones they didn't want to obey. In other words, lawyers then were lawyers today. The only thing is that today lawyers have to separate their obligations with psychologists. Some laws, psychologists are the ones that mediate the tension with, and others, lawyers do. Psychologists get rid of guilt. Lawyers get rid of penalties. Okay? Now, here's what we're going to do. Stephen or David is going to come up first, and I'm going to let David make that decision, because with that lead-in about Corbin, maybe you want to come first. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. The book of Deuteronomy happens as Israel is finishing their sojourning in the wilderness and all of the wicked generation that rejected God's will of going into the land of Canaan after they came out of Egypt has died off. And they're now on just on the other side of the Jordan from the Holy Land, from the promised land. And Moses is speaking to them and he's giving them a, a, a restatement of the law. He's giving them his last words to them. He recounts to them what has gone on. He gives them his last words. And then when you get to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it's the account of Moses' death. Moses, in fact, dying without the benefit and joy of actually going into the promised land himself because he himself had not treated God as holy. And it was a severe punishment, which is another question that has to do with uh, not with the question of what commandments are worse than others, but whether or not there are punishments that are worse than others. And I would say that Moses might be a good example of that. And certainly the book of James says that those who teach incur a stricter judgment. And so you should be careful about desiring to do that. But I want want to set up real quick... What I'm going to come to, it's, a, it's in chapter 6, and it's referred to in the Jewish community as the Shema. And it is basically this, the stating of the greatest commandment that the lawyer in our text this morning brings to Jesus. But I want you to be set up for it because I want you to understand that as Moses begins talking to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 1, and he gets through to chapter 5. In chapter 5, he reiterates the Ten Commandments. So you have to understand that this is a, this is a solid speech. Chapter 5, he's talking, he's telling them the Ten Commandments, and he's saying them just like they're, just like they're given in Exodus 20. And he gets through the Ten Commandments, and he gets down to chapter 6. And I want you to feel... I want you to feel this not as you might consider it as just something that just leaps out of Scripture and you handle in an isolated way. So the Shema is, is the statement, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If you just let that leap out or separate that out from its context, it sounds very different in your mind. I want you to understand, he just reiterated for them the Ten Commandments. 
He just told them about the sins of their fathers. And he's coming down to this point, and he says, after telling them the Ten Commandments again, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and walk and you you will and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead you shall set them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates so it's coming out of the context of him just teaching them again about the law and when it comes to the question of greater and lesser Um, if you look at the Ten Commandments, they're understood to be in two, two tables. And there's question about the fifth commandment, which is the commandment concerning honor, honoring your father and mother, whether that belongs to the first tablet of the law or whether it belongs to the second. The first tablet of the law really has to do with everything concerning God. And the second tablet seems to have to do with all of our interaction with one another. And so where, do the, where does this, the commandment about the parents come in? Well, if you think about the commandment about the parents in regards to authority and the connection between God and his authority over us, you can understand that the, the commandment about the parents is connected to the first tablet of the law. Because it has to do with honoring those whom God has put in authority in our lives. All through our lives, and particularly as Tim just stated and as Jesus said, when we're responsible to take care of them in their old age. So here you have the commandment as it's issued in Deuteronomy. And then it says, as it's restated in our, verse, our chapter in Matthew. But then go quickly to Second Peter. Second Peter. In Second Peter, chapter two, verse four, the Lord starts speaking through Peter and talking about judgment. And he says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And listen now. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. 
he lists out two things as especially heinous, especially as designated to receive an especial judgment. And that is the rejection of authority and immorality or indulgence or selfishness. And so if you think about these verses in connection to the Shema, in connection to Deuteronomy 5 and the restatement of the the Ten Commandments, you can see that there is a connection between this idea of despising God. And it's, it's the sin of our culture. This is the sin of our culture today. Despising authority and indulging our flesh. Those are our two chief sins. I don't think I could get anybody really to argue with me about it. We, deci- we despise authority and we indulge our flesh. If you think about the Ten Commandments, the first table, it's all about God and who He is over us. All the way down to where I would argue the placement of our parents over us. And the first tablet, when we despise God's authority, we say no to that. We say no to loving God with all our heart. And the second tablet is all about our indulgence, serving ourselves at the cost of of destroying other people. And we say no to obedience to those commands and we serve ourselves, but both of those particular sins are especially heinous to God and will receive an especial judgment. So it seems clear to me that there is a definite hierarchy of sins. And Stephen, would you come now? So there's a way that that people often either deny or twist what Jesus says in this in this passage. And the way that they deny what Jesus says is they claim that all sins are the same. The way they twist what Jesus says, which is what I'm not going to talk about today, is uh, but I want you to see it is people twist what Jesus says about love. To mean that the New Testament is all about love, not those nasty, mean, Old Testament things called commandments. So that's how they twist it. But they deny his words by saying that all sins are the same. Sin is sin in God's eyes. There are no degrees of sin or judgment with God. All sins are equal. And we would maintain that that would be a a direct denial of what Jesus says here. Because Jesus says that there is a greatest and a second greatest commandment. And if one commandment's greater than another, then one sin must be greater than another. Now, think about it. Why would we want to say that all sins are equal? Well, some, for some people, it's this. For some people, for some Protestants, especially Protestants who have grown up Roman Catholic, who've, who used to be Roman Catholic and now they're Protestants, Sometimes Protestants react against the Roman Catholic distinction between mortal sins and venial sins. Some of you know what I mean by that. Mortal sins are the sins that you can do in the Roman Catholic system that will kill justifying grace in you. Venial sins are sins that are less serious. They don't kill justifying grace. So with mortal sins, you have to be justified again. Venial sins, you don't. Some Protestants don't want to make that mistake. And that is a mistake, but it's not the mistake of saying there are distinctions between sins. It's a distinction about what justification is. 
So some people say, no, all sins are the same in God's eyes because they're reacting against Roman Catholicism. But there's a second reason. There's a huge desire in evangelical church culture to express common ground with unbelievers. This is the more common thing. In other words, we don't want to come off as self-righteous and intolerant. And so if, if all sins are equal in God's sight, then your sin is not worse than my sin. No, we're all the same. We're all the same. It's all, it's all okay. And in American culture today, and therefore also in Christian culture, there is one sin that is worse than any other. And you know what it is, right? All sins are the same except for one. One is really, really, really bad. And that's the sin of being judgmental or condescending or, or intolerant. And so we do, we do all of that. We do all that we can do to make no distinctions. And we have followed lockstep with the lead of our culture that hates authority and therefore hates distinctions. Distinctions between God and man. Distinctions between men and women. Distinctions between mankind and animals. And distinctions between sins. We hate distinctions because distinctions require authority and judgment and both yes and no. And we hate it. But are, but are all sins equal in God's eyes? Are they? In one sense, yes. God Almighty will punish all sins in His justice and wrath. This is exactly what we just happened to have read in, in the confession today in the catechism. No sin will go unpunished, and the penalty that every single sin deserves is death. And your sin and mine will be punished either as God pours out His wrath and anger and righteous condemnation against sin on your rebellion, on, on your head. He will punish all sin. Either He will punish your sin as He pours out His anger on your head, or... He will pour out His anger and righteous condemnation on Jesus' head in your place. But He will pour out His wrath and condemnation for every sin that has ever been committed or ever will be committed. All sin will be met with justice and all sin deserves condemnation. But on the other hand, the Bible is perfectly clear that all sins are not equal in every respect. Some sins will result in greater condemnation. We read this kind of thing all the time. Jesus says in Matthew 12, Beware the scribes, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and who like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. What does he say about them? These will receive greater condemnation. There's greater judgment for them because they should have known better. Matthew 11, the same kind of thing. Jesus is talking to a city. He's talking to a whole city, the city of Chorazin. He has come and he's preached to them and they have rejected it and they don't want to hear the gospel. He's preaching to them in another city called Bethsaida. And he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, other cities in the area, which had occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. You've seen. You've heard. 
and you've rejected. And that is the great danger of every one of us sitting in under the hearing of God's Word today, because you're hearing, you're seeing. You will be held to a greater standard. It's a great danger of raising children to, to, to know God. They will be held to a higher standard because to whom much is given, much will be required. John 19, the same thing. Pilate said to Jesus, when Jesus is standing before Pilate on trial, Pilate says to Jesus, you do not speak to me. You do not speak to me. You're not answering me, answering my charges. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. You're just doing what you're supposed to do in your office. The one who delivered me to you, the one who betrayed me, he has the greater sin. Some sins will absolutely result in greater condemnation. Some sins have more harmful effects on the sinner. Think of what Jesus says, or what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He commands us, he says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. There's a difference. Run as fast as you can away from immorality. Because immorality is especially harmful to you. There is a sin that's unpardonable. Jesus says in Matthew 12, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. There is a sin... John says in, in 1 John, there is a sin that leads to death. He says in 1 John chapter 5, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, he shall ask and God will, for, I'm sorry, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. John even says there are some Some sins that people commit, you don't even pray. Don't even pray about those sins. Leave it alone. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. And there are sins that are worse because they are an an abomination against God and against the nature of the world that God has made. Particularly sexual sins like sodomy and bestiality. This is what God says in Leviticus chapter 18. Verses 22 and 23. He says, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. These are sins that are completely completely on another level because they go directly against God and the the nature of things, the way God has made the world. And this is not just an Old Testament standard. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1.24, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among uh, among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature 
rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. The idolatry of of men's hearts that turns away from God that has its ultimate culmination in these kinds of sins. God gave them over to their degrading passions for their woman ex- women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. But what do we want to say? What we want to say in our culture is homosexuality, sodomy, bestiality, adultery, fornication, sex outside of marriage. It's all the same. It's all the same. We've all committed these kinds of sins one way or another. That is not what Scripture teaches. Is adultery wicked? Absolutely adultery is wicked. Is fornication wicked? Is having sex with your girlfriend before you're married wicked? Absolutely it is wicked. Is sodomy, or what our culture calls homosexuality, more or less wicked than adultery and fornication? It is more wicked. That does not mean that adultery and fornication are not wicked. But it does mean that they're are sins that are worse than others. It means that some sins are especially destructive and especially dishonoring and especially odious and especially abominable to God. Reject our culture's rejection of distinctions. You do no one any favors when you tell them that all sin is equal in God's eyes. You shield them from the weight of the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. And you dishonor and misrepresent God who has spoken clearly. So many people deny a plain implication of Jesus' words here by saying all sin is equal in God's eyes. Jesus says in reality there is a great commandment. And there are lesser commandments. And there are greater judgments. And there are greater consequences for sin. Now, why are we getting into this? Well, because sometimes when you're dealing with uh, dandelions or or weeds in a garden, um, you go into the garden and, you know, there's some weeds that send out one taproot and there are other weeds that send out a whole bunch of roots. And uh, sometimes when you're weeding, you'll you'll pull up the weed by the by its leaves and you'll realize you're leaving lots of roots in there. But you just think, well, at least for now. You know, it looks nice, and the guests are coming over, and my mother's a gardener, and let's make the, the garden look decent, right? But you know that if you've broken off the taproot of a weed, that that weed will come back. And so I'm going to nail in on this issue of homosexuality, because I think it is the taproot of what we today think of in terms of lesser and greater sins. Um, and I, I want to use as an illustration of this uh, Yahoo Forum. Now, on the Internet, there are places you can get answers. Yahoo Forum is one of the places you can get answers. And there is this question asked in the Yahoo Forum. Here's the question, and then there's about 40 or 50 answers. The question is, are all sins equal or are some greater than others? 
And if they are unequal, what is the worst sin a person can commit? And then sidebar, is homosexuality worse than adultery? And they're just asking what we're all wondering. I mean, you know, if it's a Yahoo form, there's a reason there's a Yahoo form, and there's a reason that homosexuality and adultery are used as the examples of the question. So now, let me just read a couple of the answers that come here. According to God, this is somebody writing in, giving the answer. According to God, sin is sin, and that is what separates us from Him. Once we ask God for forgiveness, He forgives us, and our sin, no matter what it is, is cast into the sea of forgetfulness. It is Satan who wants us to think one sin is greater than another because he wants us to believe we are unforgivable for committing sin. And that is one of the ways the devil tries to get a hold of us. And then up, you know, large caps. But God is a loving and forgiving God and every sin is forgivable if we ask for God's mercy. In the end, that's all God wants anyway is for us to choose him. After all, he chose us first. Now, this is like just a whole muck of confused, wonderful, terrible things. You know, the inclinations are right, aren't they? Everything that they're writing is right in the inclination, but there's so much damage done in the process of doing what's right. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like a blackboard and fingernails. Now, of course, it's true that no sin is beyond the forgiveness of the blood of Christ. The great sin of the depressed man is he has such pride. He's so precious with himself. The depressed man is so precious with himself. Because he nurses his wickedness such that even the blood of Christ is not sufficient for him. He's so precious with himself. Right? And so there are people who believe that that secret sin that they committed is beyond the grace of Jesus Christ. We all know those people because we know our own hearts. And we know that Satan is constantly accusing us, saying, you can't be forgiven for that sin. Now, you know, I could open up my shirt and show you my scar. And you could open up your shirt and show me your scar. In other words, all of us have these sins, all of us have these tapes that are played between us and the devil, accusing us and saying you're beyond the grace of... What was the sin of Judas? Was the sin of Judas betraying Christ? Yeah. But the sin of Judas was despairing of the grace of the very one who he betrayed. And the people that killed Judas, as they killed him, Jesus said what to them? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so people who come to the conviction that their sin is beyond the, the help of the blood of Christ have no, no clue how precious the blood of his son is to him, God, and how much payment it can make for our sin. And if Satan tells you that you're beyond the grace of Jesus Christ, that your sin is beyond the payment of the blood of Jesus Christ, it's Satan. He is the father of lies. He tells lies as his native tongue. You're not beyond it. Now, we're going to get into this more next week on the subject of our love for God, his love for us, and our love for one another. But you've got to understand that when somebody says every sin's equal, every sin's the same, God loves you, God holds out forgiveness, they're absolutely right in everything but saying all sin is the same 
Because you don't have to say that to show them that the sin that they have is subject to the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? You don't have to say it. It's not necessary. Now, why do we say it? Well, uh, let me read another example. Here's another person answering the question. The question is, does God see shades of gray? We must first make something very clear. There are many sins in this world that we can commit. One can be overlooked while another one brings a gasp of disbelief. But there's only one sin. And that is, quote, being the boss of your own life, unquote. If you take care of sin, then sins will fall by the wayside as we grow in his love and mercy. Is homosexuality worse than adultery? They're both branches of sins that grow out of the root sin. So which is better for you, hemlock or cyanide? It all leads to sickness, destruction, and death. Isaiah 118, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Sin is a sin, is a sin, is a sin. Quotes, that's what they write. Sin is a sin, is a sin, is a sin. But I would say the worst sin of all is to not let Christ into your life. He created you. He is your Savior. And he died for your sins so that you could have eternal life. Exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. A sin is a sin. There's no greatness level. Whether homosexuality, adultery, they are the same in God's sight. Uppercase sin, exclamation mark. You know, again and again, we believe God needs help. And that we're the man for the plan. And God, we know what his goal is. His goal is over here. But, you know, being in this world, living in 20th century or 21st century America, you know, being in the Western world, we know how God can get to his goal better than God himself knows. And we know today what God really needs help on is getting rid of the concept of levels of sin and levels of punishment because, you know, that's what the church in the past did. In the past, the church said that some things were perverse. But we don't need the language of perversity because we all know that we look down on homosexuals. We all are homophobic to a certain degree, all of us. And, and, and we need to get past this. We need to realize that homosexuality is just one more sin. And so if homosexuals are going to be brought to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, what we need to do is tell everybody there are no levels of sin. So that homosexuals don't feel particularly condemned because through the ages, the church has done an awful job of like dealing with homosexuals as if there's something that nobody can ever forgive or deal with. Now, doesn't that feel good? Come on, be honest with me. That feels wonderful. Yes, we have been homophobic. We have, you know, there's a yuck factor, right? And we all know what it is, and we all deny that we know what it is, but the church has done that for too long. What we need to do is repent of that and embrace mercy to homosexuals. Right? But let me ask, is it mercy to tell homosexuals that homosexuality is no worse sin than adultery? Is it mercy to them? Do we love them when we tell them that? If you've ever been involved with homosexual sin and you're a man, and we've had many men in this church that have been. This church is just like every other church. It's got adulterers and fornicators and bestiality people and homosexuals and, and thieves from the offering plates. You know, we disciplined a man a number of years ago from stealing from the offering. This is just all normal church stuff. And if you've been in a church where you didn't know that, 
That's because they specialized in hiding sin. All right. We have it here. Let me tell you. Uh, Just me. You know what? If you were to find out what I am, what you would find out is I'm a lot like King David, a man after God's own heart. (laughs) Murderer, adulterer, lazy slob at the time when men go out to war. (laughs) You know, I'm him. And I'm preaching. So the church is always filled with sinners. So again, do we love homosexuals when we tell them that that sin is no worse than adultery? And the answer is no. Because if we love people, we will study their sin, our sin, what God's law says, and we'll become very, very good at being able to diagnose the difference between what? Being able to diagnose the difference between an enlarged spleen and cancer. In other words, no doctor would ever get our money. Would we ever go to if the doctor just diagnosed everything as an enlarged spleen? But doctor, tell me, why do I feel so bad? You've got an enlarged spleen, or more likely, it's a cold. You've got the flu, you know. And yet that's what the church is doing. Don't worry, we've all got the flu, but the worst sin is not believing that God loves flu people. You know, and it's like not one of you does that deal with your heart the way you need your heart dealt with. Not one of you. Think of your precious sin that you have no hope God forgives. What is it? That sin that you are in bondage to. Is somebody going to help you by telling you that you have the flu, but Jesus loves people with flu, and if we all just admit we have the flu, then the flu will be done with because the blood of Christ is sufficient for flu. And you go, well, you know, i got a really nasty case of the flu. We say, don't worry, all sin is the same. Trust Jesus. It sounds good, doesn't it? (laughs) But let me tell you something. If you're in bondage to homosexual sin, it will not satisfy you. You know why? There is a tenacity to homosexual sin. You can look at any statistics and see it. It is nasty. And if you love a man that has been seduced into that sin, you have to stand with him in the filthiness of it. Do you understand that? You have to look at it in order to love him. You have to realize what Craigslist is. This is what the church does. She loves sinners. And you have to be aware that you're not going to love this sin. If you say it's nasty and then feel superior and go home and, 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 and don't stand with these people in their time of need. Now, I know you're never, ever supposed to say these people. You know, I know that. Let me illustrate it with another example. In order to diagnose our condition today, what we have to do is get very good at looking at it through various uh, perspectives. Here's another perspective to look at it. If I were to ask you what the worst sin that's committed today in homes is, Every one of you would agree that the worst sin committed in homes today is not adultery. 
Every one of you would say that the worst sin committed in homes today is when a father sexually molests his daughter. Right? Does anybody have a worse sin? Not feeding the dog? No. Why is it worse? You know why it's worse? It's worse because when a father uses his position of authority over his child to satisfy the lust of his flesh, he has betrayed everything that's sacred to man. Everything. <laughs> and again, we deal with this all the time in this church. You say, well, do you really? And I say, yes. Look at the court cases, people. The church is just like the world. Now, typically, it's a stepfather. But stepfathers, it doesn't matter. The fact is, you have been given by God the obligation to protect your children. And if you use that position of fiduciary responsibility for that child to molest that child, it is absolutely hair standing on and wickedness. Now, who's going to argue with me on this? Any of you? You have a man who has molested his daughter and she can no longer look at a man in the eyes. And she's there in your church every Sunday. Yeah, we have them. Okay. She can't look at a man. And you're going to have me go to that man and say, don't worry, sexual molestation of your daughter is no worse than any other sin. Jesus has come to save you. Does that help the daughter? No, it doesn't help the daughter, does it? Does that help the man? It doesn't help the man. That man has a burden, and the burden is not simply that he's given into his sexual lust. The man's burden is that he's given into his sexual lust, that he's done it under the eye of his wife in the home to the one that his wife loves, that he's done it to his daughter that God has given him an obligation to care for, that the Bible says that anybody that places a stumbling block before a little one, it would be better if a millstone had been tied around his neck and he'd been thrown into the sea. That's the man's problem. Right? It's awful. Now, does the mercy of God extend to a man that uses his home and his bed and his child for his own sex? Does the mercy of God extend to that man? You bet it does. You bet it does. And if you think you're better than that man, you haven't begun to understand your sin before God. You see how it works? We don't have to lie. We can name the sin. We can diagnose it properly. We can pull back, pull back the curtains to the man, show it to him in all its awfulness. And then we can say, the mercy of Jesus Christ. I can hold out the communion cup and the bread to him and say, the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you. And I look in that man's eyes and I've told him how awful his sin is. And he's confessed it to me. And then we look at the blood of Christ and we say, the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you. You know what? In the Western world today we have... The Western world today is the product of the French Revolution. The French Revolution... Liberty, equality, fraternity. And let's take equality. Heaven will be equality. In heaven there will be no rewards that are greater than any others. And in hell there will be no punishments that are worse. And here on this world, that means we're all one. There's no distinction between sins and sinners. None. It's just all the same. It's an amorphous globule of wickedness. But it's not really that wicked because Jesus died for it. And so we're just the product of our culture. 
Everybody's the same. I'm the same. You're the same. You're a woman. I'm a man. But that doesn't matter. You know, you're a child molester. And, and, you know, I'm a masturbator. And really, in God's eyes, they're all the same. And you say, oh, how did you say that word in church? I say, hey, listen, there are churches that will make sure you never hear that word. Find them. But here, we know our hearts and the hearts of our children. Now, what's the application of this to you? Well, number one, become a physician of the soul. In your relationship with your children, with your husband, with your wife, with your mother, with your ch- become a physician of the soul. Learn to know the struggles that people have. Learn to know the particularities of their struggle. If you're somebody that's always around people who play the stock market, you should be an expert in greed. <laughs> and you're, you're surprised I said that, aren't you? You know, if you're always around people who are teaching in a public school system, be an expert in suffering and witnessing in the midst of adversity, because that's what it Christian school teacher has to do today. You know, if you're, whatever you are in a relationship to other people, you need to be expert in their sin. Now, I want to close with an illustration so that you get an idea of why it's important that we affirm the levels of sin. We've hit the issue of homosexuality because that's the issue that people hit today. That's the one that everybody says, no, it's all the same. But now let me back out and go to another sin. All right. How about the sin of abortion? One time I had a woman come to me. She was involved in crusade. She came, I think, at the end of February. She came into my office and sat down and told me that she had been very involved in crusade here at IU and that she had gotten a boyfriend who was also in crusade and that they had had sex and she had become pregnant. All right? We all know this happens. University, Navigators, Crusade, Reform, University of Minnesota. It doesn't make any difference. It happens, right? Because that's who we are. So she sat there, and what she said to me is she went home, and her parents were unbelievers. And when she went home, what do you think happened? She's pregnant. She tells her parents, and what do her parents do? They told her that if she did not get an abortion, that she would not go back to IU, that they would cut her off financially. And so she sat at home and refused to have an abortion for two weeks. And now she's telling me the story. She she begins to weep. And she tells me that after two weeks, she gives in to her parents and they pay for an abortion. And there she sits in front of me crying. Now, What would you do if you're a physician of the soul? You're a pastor. You're a shepherd of the flock. And you have a woman in front of you crying because her baby is dead and her parents made her do it. What would you do? You see, if you're a leveler, if you're a post-French Revolution person, what you'll do is do what? You'll say, don't worry about it. Everybody knows parents are awful. And I'll bet it was your dad, not your mother. You know, because of... (laughs) Or you're going to say, every sin before God is the same. And you need to trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, you know that's not what I did. What did I do? You know what I did? I said to her, so what happened? She said, well, I told you what happened. I said, no, tell me again what happened. She said, well... 
my parents made me get an abortion and I had an abortion. I said, now you have not yet told me what happened. And she gets this confused look. She's got tears coming out of her eyes. And she says, my baby died. I said, you haven't yet told me. Tell me, what did you do? And now she's cornered, crying is more. What did I make her say? You know what I made her say. What did I make her say? I made her say the words, I murdered my baby. Do you understand this? It's not sufficient for her to tell me with tears in her eyes that her baby's dead because her parents made her do it. She hasn't yet faced her own culpability. She's a woman made in the image of God. She gave in to her parents. How is it that today would we say women are free to be all God made them to be, that they're not moral agents when it comes to abortion? Women are responsible for what they do to their children. Women's liberation isn't about blaming men for everything. It's about women being women. Mothers, wives, single women, Mother Teresa. And so when she said, I murdered my baby, then the tears came and I looked at her and I said, and what does God say to a woman who has murdered her own child? And she got this, you know, angelic look on her face of, 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 of peace. And she said, he tells me that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient for that sin. And I said, for a murderer? Yes. For a mother who murders her child? Yes. I said, yeah. And I'm no better than you. And King David's no better than you. Why do we think that we have to flee from sin and flee from judgment and flee from everything that the Bible tells us about who we are in order to discover the mercy of Jesus Christ? The mercy of Jesus Christ is nothing until I say, I am a murderer. I am a thief. I am a fornicator, an adulterer. I am a sodomite. I have killed my children. I have molested. And you say, have you done all those things? The Bible says there's no temptation taken you, but what is common to man. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all ways like as we are yet without sin. And so here's the truth, people. The truth is there are levels of sin. And until you begin to see those levels and to confess them to God and become a student of sin, you don't begin to discover the riches of the grace of Jesus Christ. Listen. In, in the place of God... No, I'm not God, but in the place of God, I stand here in front of you and I say to you, murderers and adulterers and sodomites and thieves and whoremongers, I say to you that the mercy of Jesus Christ through the blood that he poured out on that cross is sufficient for that sin. That sin. Whatever sin Satan tells you is beyond the blood of Christ. And it is awful. It is awful. 